miss the show, no worries. On point and on the podcast. Coming up, Premier Ford is determined to get the Ring of Fire developed. What is this? Well, it's a multi-billion dollar opportunity for Ontario. A absolute game changer and also crucial to our dreams of all things electric car and battery. But this is a promise that's been made for decades. So what's standing in its way? While we bicker about vaccine mandates, China just keeps escalating its threat both abroad and here at home, where Hong Kong protesters who escaped here to Canada saying they'd be harassed and now threatened daily by the communist regime who are making clear that they are watching these people. And we'll talk about a hand signal invented in Canada that's now known around the world because it saved a 16-year-old American girl. Let's get talking. This is On Point with Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. As you know, Pierre is one of our strongest communicators. He's tough in the House. I see the Liberals quiver when he rises to his feet, whether it's on the We Charity scandal or other issues. Ahead of the election, we were drawing a choice between Mr. Trudeau's CERB and reliance on government forever or jobs, the economy, getting our country back on its feet. Now the big risk facing our country is inflation, the highest rate in 20 years. So I want Mr. Trudeau, I want Minister Freeland worried about their complacency, their overspending and this NDP coalition. They can buy Jagmeet Singh's silence, they cannot buy ours or Pierre's. Finally, Arnold Tool does something smart. He just won't end all his problems. Alex Pearson with you on this Tuesday, November 9th. Great to have you here along for the ride. And today seems to be a lesson of learning from one's mistakes. And so what has Aaron O'Toole learned? Well, he needed to correct the uh, mistake of removing Pierre Polyavra from the position of finance critic, which when he did it, it just infuriated the base. And so as O'Toole unveils the players of his shadow cabinet, Polyavra is the newsmaker because he's back in the high-profile job that will once again put him where he should be, which is front and center doing what Polly Ever does best, which is being the attack dog. And um, while critics are having fun mocking this and liberals are laughing it off, they shouldn't, because he's very, very effective at making Mr. Trudeau look stupid. Nobody believes you when you say you don't know how much money your family has got from the We Group. You've had a month to look into that. You knew you were going to testify here. Again, how much money total have your brother, mother, and spouse received from this organization? How much? That information has been publicly shared, but I will highlight. Well, then tell me what it is. uh, My mother. How much has uh, has just the dollar figure uh, throughout her life? The dollar uh, figure, Prime Minister. Various ways, and is uh, proud of the work that she's done, and I'm proud of her. How much? Uh, I'm looking for can, a dollar figure. We can, we can get that number for you if you like. It's been in, out in the media. It's been in the media, in but you don't know it? I don't have it in front of me. And quite you don't frankly, know how much your family has received from this organization, which you tried to give a half billion dollars. Really? Can I answer, Mr. Polyev? I'm waiting. You haven't done an answer so far. Let's make this the first one. <laughs> Those moments are like shooting fish in a barrel. I just was Polyev making Trudeau look stupid. Up they pop. I mean, like him or hate him, Polyevra is great at getting under the skin of his opponent. And he's unapologetic. He's very entertaining to watch. He's like a dog on a bone. And he can do the dirty work that the leader of a party really can't. And while O'Toole wouldn't say why he was moved in the first place, I mean, it's pretty obvious. 
As long as Polyev was taking up all the headlines, a still unknown O'Toole would be overshadowed. So this move today will please the base. It'll allow Polyavra to shift the narrative from vaccine mandates back to hopefully what we should be talking about. And that is, oh, I don't know, the threat of cost of living, surging inflation, uh, something that Polyavra has been warning of for a year and a half. And what the Bank of Canada got very, very wrong, but now admits is a much bigger problem that's going to end up lasting much longer than it predicted. So I think Polyavra front and center is good because we need a strong opposition to keep the Liberals in check. But it doesn't fix O'Toole's leadership problems. And if you look at polling since the election, it now shows the Conservatives eight points back of the Liberals. And it's because ever since the election, O'Toole has been just a day, every day, a series of bad daily headlines, which is why noticeably absent from his new team is anyone who's been speaking out against vaccines and vaccine mandates, which would include Leslin Lewis, who played a very big role getting Mr. O'Toole elected leader. Now, some people say, well, she should have been appointed to a critic position. Well, no, I mean, she's, she's fairly new to politics still. But I don't know how she would expect to get appointed when she has been going rogue. And then you've got Marilyn Gladue, who's now apologizing for questioning the severity of COVID in an interview, and undermining O'Toole. The sad thing, apologies mean nothing in politics. And so the damage is done. Now, what would Stephen Harper have done? Well, he'd have tossed these MPs on their butts. Mr. Mulroney says he'd have tossed them on their butts. Okay. Mr. O'Toole can't do that. Under the new party rules, he doesn't have that authority. So the only way that Mr. O'Toole can remove this stinking albatross of rogue MPs from his neck is by getting control of the party or convincing the caucus to turf the distractions out. And if he can't, then he's in trouble. Because right now, there is just a salvo of never-ending issues that O'Toole should be launching against Trudeau on a daily basis. And right now, he can't. Because O'Toole can't unwedge himself from this distraction. And so Justin Trudeau will just keep using the wedge issue to distract. He's found one that sticks. Abortion doesn't really work anymore. You know, all these other ones, guns, well, he's got a new one. Vaccine mandates. And so, look, I hope Mr. O'Toole can get this ship righted. We've got serious issues. There is a lot the Trudeau government should be accountable for, should have to answer to. But if the Conservatives continue taking up all the oxygen in the room, Trudeau's just going to coast on by doing whatever it is he does. The good news now, though, is that Mr. Polyevra will, in fact, be calling him out. So I think they'll eventually, at one point, get the last laugh. I fell into a burning ring of fire. I went down, 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 and the flames went higher. Welcome back to On Point with Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. We're always going to consult with the Indigenous community, First Nations community up there. This is going to benefit 
so many people from First Nations communities up there. They're going to have good paying jobs. They're going to be part of the investments. They're going to be able to build roads, not just to get up to the mines, but also to get goods up there a lot quicker as well. This is just a massive win for uh, the First Nations community, and we're going to work uh, side by side with them. And we do nothing up there without uh, making sure there's a buy-in from the vast majority of the communities up there. That is Premier Ford on Monday talking about the Ring of Fire. And um, this really would be a game changer, not just for Ontario, but for this country. But he was talking about his goal of developing it. And this is something that we've heard from politicians for the past couple of decades, where promise after promise we're hearing that it'll be developed, which would then bring this multi-billion dollar mining hub, which is located about 500 kilometers north of Thunder Bay, um, and just open us up to a world of, of riches and so far all we get is talk and this is a mineral deposit that's home to billions in nickel chromite lithium copper you name it it's there and so it's great for our economy but Doug Ford's also staking his electric vehicle dreams on this mining development as well as becoming the battery capital of North America so he's got to get this thing moving forward but that could only happen if deals can be struck with local indigenous groups, many that do support it, but certainly not all. And so the question becomes, how does Doug Ford get them on board? Melissa Mabarki is a policy analyst and outreach coordinator over at the McDonald Laurier Institute and a member of the Treaty 4 Nation in Saskatchewan. Good to have you, Melissa. Thanks for having me back. There are five First Nation groups in this very, very remote area, and three of them have declared already a moratorium on development earlier this year. Uh, Attawapiskat First Nations in a court challenge, um, they describe the situation as explosive. Is it that they don't want development or how it's developed? I think it's a combination of everything. So what the province has to do and what operators need to do is they need to keep Indigenous communities involved at every stage of this project, right from the start all the way to reclamation of that area. Um, you know, they could oppose different parts of the project, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they oppose everything. So going forward, consultation and, you know, including these communities is going to be vital in this project going mm-hmm. forward. And I think... There has Okay, go on, finish your point. Oh, sorry. And I think if we're transitioning to this green economy, you know, mining is essential in that process. And I think First Nations communities do realize this. You know, they just need to be involved and included. There have been, um, you know, the, the Wynn government have, had said that they were in talks with Indigenous groups. The Ford government says that they have been talking and in consultation for the last couple of years and that those talks are ongoing. Where is the sticking point? I mean, uh, Chief Wayne Munias of the Neskentanga First Nation, if I'm saying that correctly, um, said it's going to be a strong stance. Uh, And so where do the the, um, talks stand now and how much further are we apart? So the the negotiations themselves uh, were put on hold during covid and, you know, now that we're kind of, recover, you know, in recovery mode and these talks are again on the table, you know, I, I really do think that, you know, they need to be they need to be involved in the environmental side of things. And this is the very first part of any kind of project. 
So, you know, this is where they can have their say in, in how they want this land or this mining area um, to be, you know, developed and then at the end of its life cycle to be, um, you know, shut down and, and rehabilitated. So I think he's coming more from a, a stance from the environmental side of things, whereas other uh, chiefs and other leaders, they may be more on the participation side of it. You know, they may want a, a bigger stake in it because their communities are impacted. But at the end of the day, it's a win-win for all. It's a win for the provinces or for the province, and it's a win for the First Nations communities. There is a, an assumption, I think, in this country that um, all First Nations and Indigenous groups are against uh, energy projects, which you very well and you're very outspoken, uh, you and several others say is is very much untrue. Um, there are many, many First Nations groups that actually want to be part of these kinds of projects, of oil projects. They want financial independence. This would actually give them financial independence. And so how long, Melissa, do you feel a negotiation like this will take place? Are you more optimistic? mystic about something like the Ring of Fire than you would be, let's say, an oil project? Well, with the, it's interesting with this with this project, you know, it's, it's part of that transition and it's part of what First Nations communities want to see. You know, they may not necessarily, you know, be in support of oil and gas, but they may be in support of, you know, electric vehicles and, you know, being part of that production of the batteries. So I think, you know, in hind- when you think about it, um, you know, they're in support of this. And what we mm. see are a select few that may um, disagree. But what we need to remember is that it's only a handful of people. If a community decided on a project, they went to their members and voted on it. And it takes an 80% vote to say yes to something. And that's not easy. So when we see communities agree with projects and they actually want to bring economic development to their communities, that took a lot of work. And there was a lot of work that went behind it. So for a select few to be very vocal against it, you know, they have to come to terms with what their communities agreed with. And they have to work with them to figure out if they can come to a solution or not. Yeah, but as you well know, a handful of people can put a stop to something that an overwhelming number of Indigenous uh, groups want. Um, We've seen it time and again. I mean, the United Nations just put a a stop to an energy development project in the West um, without even doing basic uh, research, uh, which very much went against what Indigenous groups want. And so it's a very complicated issue, um, and it's one that is is delicate, and it takes it doesn't happen overnight. And so, you know, if you were to look at this, or as you do look at this from the outside in, I mean, this is a project that needs roads. I mean, it's very remote. Uh, there's all sorts of things that need to happen what would we be looking at as far as a timeline or the major sticking point that has to be worked out? Projects this this huge, you know, take years, if not decades. And, you know, what it's also going to bring to these communities is clean drinking water. Um, and it's going to bring mm-hmm. them food security because they're going to have, you know, a yeah. transport system that gets to these communities. And these two communities alone, like Attawapiskat and Neskatanga, like they, they've been dealing with their water issue for decades. And one of the main reasons is because it's hard to get equipment out to these, to these communities and it's hard to, you know, access them. So this would solve one of their biggest issues. And, you know, in terms of timelines, 
you know, if the province really wanted to escalate this and if First Nations really wanted this in their area, it could be done a lot quicker and negotiations can go a lot smoother. Um, you know, and I and I hope to see that because this would be a huge benefit for that area. It would be massive. It'd be massive for the country. It would be massive for the province of Ontario. It could be a very big game changer for pretty much everyone involved. And so if you were advising uh, the Ford government as part of the negotiations, where would you be telling them to go just so that they can expedite this, do it right, and get, uh, you know, consensus all around? Get to these communities get you know get a team into them start educating these communities on what this on what this mining project is start getting them engaged in the workforce start getting them engaged in the planning when you have them on board right from the beginning the process goes mm-hmm. a lot easier and this is what i've seen on so many large scale projects you need to have first nations involved right from the get go Yeah, good advice. Nonetheless, I knew you would have some thoughts on this. I know you have a lot of experience in this particular area, so I appreciate you uh, joining us with your thoughts. Yeah, thanks for having me back on again. Melissa Mabarki joining us here. So yeah, keep an eye on that. I mean, it's it's uh, been a conversation for a really long time, but I certainly hope that uh, they can get this moving because it would be a massive game changer for all. All, I say. All right, great to have you here for the show. You know, we bicker a lot right now about things like vaccine mandates, the lowering of our flag. And while we're doing all that, China is growing into a daily threat, not just abroad, but here in the country. The Washington Post reporting that the Pentagon's now warning that China's stockpiling nuclear weapons at such an alarming pace that it will rival the U.S. and Russia within five years. But worse, they've changed their position from a defense stance to a launch ready alert posture, which is the same kind of hair trigger posturing that we saw during the Cold War between Russia and the United States. But here in Canada, pro-democracy Hong Kong protesters who escaped to Canada are now reporting to being harassed and threatened aggressively on a daily basis by the Chinese Communist Party and its proxies, and who are seeing threats as brazen as beheadings and making clear that these critics Um, and their life and their businesses and families are being watched. What are we doing all about it? Nothing, because we're bickering about things like vaccine mandates. Marcus Kolga, senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute, also founder of Disinfo Watch and an expert on Russia, China, and all things Indo-Pacific, joins us now. Good to have you, Marcus. Thank you for having me on, Alex. You know, it seems somewhat um, sad, silly, if not all out pathetic. You know, we're bickering about little things in this country when we have actual tangible threats that are going on around us and here within our communities. You know, the people that you fought, you know, put their lives on the line, marching in the streets of Hong Kong to protect their independence, now come to this country only to find themselves under the same kind of threat. And who's doing anything about it? Uh, Well, there isn't much being done about it, unfortunately, Alex. Um, You know, I think that the Canadian government is has been keeping an eye on human rights around the world. You know, we try to, you know, develop policies to to help journalists, uh, human rights activists and other vulnerable individuals in places, uh, you know, like like Afghanistan and and others like it, um, where people are facing risks. And it's a good thing that we're doing that. Um, you know, I think that our focus is on 
you know, these threats abroad, um, we don't like to think that there are similar activists, journalists who are facing threats right here at home, but, but it is happening. And, um, you know, countries like China, Iran, Russia are engaging in what, you know, we're calling transnational repression, transnational censorship. Okay. The, um, these efforts to intimidate people in this country, critics of those regimes, um, with threats of violence, um, you know, lawsuits and such, in order to silence them and uh, and advance their own sort of interests within government, so that Canadians um, aren't aware of what's going on in those countries. So, you know, uh, you know, I think the, that uh, civil society activists in this country and journalists who cover these issues are are clearly representing a a serious threat to China, um, but that China is also now. Um, you know, the threat that they represent to these uh, these activists themselves, we need to start taking it seriously and protecting them uh, in this country. Yeah, I mean, there are ongoing threats to journalists who cover these issues like Stan Cooper, people like that are getting threatened. Uh, China's ambassador uh, to Canada openly threatens us every chance he gets. There was a recent meeting with Chinese officials and Dominic Barton where uh, these officials basically told us to back off on our stance on Taiwan and, you know, fall in line if we've learned any lessons about the two Michaels. They don't, they don't even hide that they make these threats. Well, uh, before the, uh, the September election, about two weeks before, there was a piece in the Global Times that you and I discussed, I think, uh, uh, on the air, whereby the Chinese government, through the Global Times, which is a uh, Chinese Communist Party-owned tabloid, um, threatened Canadians that if they elected a conservative government, that Canada should be prepared uh, for counter-strikes. Um, mm -hmm. So they're not just you know, threatening individuals, but they're, they're trying to intimidate uh, uh, Canadians as, as, you know, writ large um, and trying to make sure that we're, we're soft on, uh, on, uh, on Chinese issues. And, you know, they, they're trying to get away with all sorts of um, nasty things, you know, whether it's uh, these, the genocide that's going on in, in Xinjiang, uh, you know, the mass suppression of, of Hong Kong pro-democracy activists. And as you've mm -hmm. mentioned, uh, the, um, the threats that, the, that are being posed to uh, Taiwan's independence and, and sovereignty by, by China. And so all of those efforts are meant to, uh, you know, try and get uh, Canada to, and Canadians to toe the line with, with China. And, uh, you know, we need, to, we need to start standing up to that. Well, it, it's interesting, and I don't know if you follow basketball. I mean, I don't, but I've certainly um, been watching um, Boston Celtic, Ennis Cater. Um, he has been very, um, almost every day he is speaking out against China. He doesn't care. He's not backing down in his criticisms of, you know, the Uyghur Muslims, of what's going on with the slave labor, um, standing with Taiwan. He, he literally gives two nothings about what China or even the NBA has to say. He's standing on the right side of his history at, at what many could say is at great risk, but he's doing more than what a lot of world leaders seem to be doing. Yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. And much to the chagrin of, of the NBA, I'm sure, because, uh, you know, the NBA is trying to grow its audience, obviously, in China. And, uh, you know, when you have these players uh, speaking up like that, it's, it's going to make the Chinese government squirm. And of course, they've started censoring some of those games uh, to try and get the NBA to uh, to rein in uh, the, this player. Um, you know, I think that others uh, need to take a cue from him. Um, we need mm -hmm. to start standing up. We need to be, we need to find the courage. And certainly in this country, you know, I think that, that the, uh, the Americans, certainly the Australians, 
some of our NATO allies, uh, especially small Lithuania, who just uh, declared that they're going to open up a, a trade office in Taiwan. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we need to start, uh, you know, looking to those countries and we need to find the courage to stand with them uh, because this sort of, uh, you know, the, the, the fine line that we're walking, um, you know, it's I think a lot of our allies right now are are starting to question our position. You know, we, we talk about AUKUS, this new, uh, you know, Pacific uh, uh, Defense Alliance. We were left out of it completely. Um, you know, the Five Eyes, I think that our allies are questioning our reliability within that. And, and these are alliances, NATO and certainly with the United States, um, these are alliances that we rely on for our national security and defense. And if we have our allies sort of questioning our position uh, on and, and our reliability as, as an ally, um, you know, that puts our, our national security uh, at risk. And this is this is something that Canadian will affect Canadians in their everyday lives uh, if we don't take uh, take measures to uh, to correct it. Well, you would think any action would be better than nothing. So far, nothing is the response of, of the Trudeau government. And then you read this report, um, you know, of the Pentagon's latest uh, report to Congress on the military strength of, of China. And they're at warp speed now. So they're, they're going to have a thousand nuclear warheads by uh, 2030. And it's not necessarily the, the number of weapons that is the only concern. It's their stance. They have kind of changed from their minimum deterrent stance um, to this, you know, early warning counterstrike, which means that they're going to have their finger on a button at any given moment. They'll strike before being strike, str uh, being hit is their kind of stance. That's not a small thing. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's not even necessarily a finger on a button. I mean, this could be just sort of algorithms um, looking for, you know, trying to detect objects flying towards China. And yeah. um, I mean, there's lots of room for error there. And um, <laughs> when it comes to nuclear war, you know, um, there is no room for error. I mean, it's it's mutual destruction once once things get going. And so, yeah, I mean, there's uh, I think there, there are serious um, concerns right now being expressed uh, by the U.S. military about this. And I think um, amongst our amongst our allies, you know, let's not forget in, in the in the 1980s during the Cold War, there were a few incidents where yeah. because the Russians and the the Americans were uh, taking a similar position, um, there was one incident in 1982, in fact, um, where the uh, Russian system or systems erroneously detected a missile being launched, and then there were four or five afterwards that followed it. And it was only because there was somebody within the Soviet nuclear defense sort of uh, bureaucracy who said, "Hold on, let's let's get let's verify that this is actually happening." The fact that he he uh, had encouraged the the leadership to to wait for half an hour. Um, before making a decision, it turned out that it was nothing, and that this they, they weren't even, they weren't missiles at all, and so it's that averted um, you know all out nuclear war. Um, you know, sure, technology is, has improved since then, but um, I'm not so sure that uh, China's technology is all that reliable, and uh, and they don't have the same sort of practice as the as the Russians and Americans do. So this this position that they've taken is is uh, is is deeply concerning. Well, I'm glad we have Melanie Jolie making a lot of calls um, and um, coming up with an audacious response. I'm sure she's on the cusp and the, uh, I guess, on the cusp of making sure we're all safe in this. Um, we'll see where well, this takes us. <laughs> as long as, as long as Do Dominic Barton approves of it. Yeah, and he seems to approve of lots of things with China <laughs> instead of going the other way, which is what I am most concerned about. Marcus, yeah. I appreciate your time. We will be chatting again. Anytime, Alex. Thanks for having me on. 
And that is Marcus Kolga, who uh, is an expert on all these issues and founder of Disinfo Watch. And uh, who knew we would be talking about China on a daily basis, but that is how the increasing threat is coming in these days. Well, it is a simple hand signal. And it saved a girl's life in the United States. And it was developed right here in Canada. And I'm going to bet that most people are just hearing about this for the first time. But this story involves a 16-year-old missing Missouri girl who displayed this hand signal, which is an open palm with her thumb tucked in. And then she closes her hand, trapping the thumb. And she then flashed that at motorists passing by her on a highway. And luckily, it caught the eye of a Kentucky driver who was then able to call 911 and got this young girl help, essentially saving her life. This girl learned this hand signal on TikTok, and it is now making headlines around the world, which is a good thing. David Toto is president of Juniper TW, TBWA. This is a marketing team that helped come up with the campaign to get this crucial hand signal known to the world. Good to have you. Good to be with you. I remember the first time I saw this particular signal. It was at the beginning of the pandemic in a television ad, and it was developed, uh, the hand signal that is, by the Canadian Women's Association to try and help women who um, might need a way to get help if they were trapped in a domestic situation with their husbands during the lockdowns. Um, and, I, and I thought it was interesting, but didn't really understand much about it. And then this story comes out, and now everybody's talking about it. Yeah, absolutely. It was, it was um, you know, we worked with the Canadian Women Foundation at the very beginning of the pandemic. We launched this signal as a tool in April 2020. And it was really, the reason for it was, you know, lockdown uh, meant there was like an, inc- an amazing increase of domestic violence at the time. Yeah. And at the same time, we noticed there was obviously everybody was jumping for work and for personal reason on video conference calls. So we just like put the two together and said, like, what if we created a tool to help people signal they need help without leaving a digital trace, which was, which is very important in domestic violence because that you know leaving yeah. a text or whatever is where people get found out. Yeah, I mean, when you look at some of the stats, and we don't have all the data yet, but there at one point during the early days of the pandemic, I mean, there were twenty thousand calls for domestic situations in a day. Um, And it's interesting because when you have a domestic situation, um, there's something about a subtlety that's needed because the last thing a woman or someone who's in a situation of abuse needs is for their attacker or their their threat to see them trying to get help. And so the sign was designed, as I understand, to be very subtle, but to send a very, very clear message. And so what went into your thinking about getting the campaign started and what the best avenue to get the, the word out on this? Yeah, so we, 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 first we created a very, you know, simple hand signal. It needed to be done potentially by one hand because, you know, somebody's on, on the phone with the other hand and needed to be subtle right. so that it couldn't be seen by perpetrator. Uh, second, what we did is, like, we, we did a very simple toolkit of, you know, static posts that, uh, you know, with the Canadian Women Foundation that can be, you know, we really launched it guerrilla style on uh, social, uh, both in Canada, but also with some partner uh, um, organization like the Women's Funding Network in the U.S., so that it could Mm -hmm. be spread out internationally as fast as possible. Um, And really, it was kind of a, 
it was like they took one more one additional tool to help people signal they you know please reach out to me safely and and it's you know it's it's one thing to create a sign and to spread it out so maximum people know it but it's another one mm-hmm. to 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 teach people how to react because often and that's the problem with domestic violence it's behind doors but when you know about it it's extremely awkward and extremely difficult to know what to do um so that, right. that was uh, that was done very carefully and, and basically we spread it out and then the it, it just influences and celebrities that you know margaret atwood first and Billie eilish mm. and it's just like millions of people that just like grabbed on it and uh, and the reason why it became i mean it became famous on on tiktok with a, a tiktok user filming it filming the tsa on tv so it was kind of this very organic way of spreading the word because there was such a need and it was felt as a as an instant need and an instant uh, very uh, useful tool. Yeah, and that a 16-year-old girl in another country was able to latch on to this signal and somehow get it out, and clearly someone noticed it, tells you that it is, in fact, um, I don't know if we can call it a universal sign now around the world, but it seems to be building to that universal sign of someone needing help right away get it now uh, is that accurate fair to say yeah absolutely i mean it was it was you know it was not built for it was not built for that it was really built for domestic violence but all of a sudden this you know design that it's so simple and starts to be to be well known or, or known enough mm-hmm. that that it can save a life and i think the reason why this story is just like really spreading out it's like it's a it's it's a it's a one human story it's one person's story uh, that you know that shows that you know you can you can actually save life and save somebody with something very very simple if you pay attention. Yeah, and I'm not on TikTok, and a lot of people are not uh, at, at a certain age are not on TikTok. I mean, I saw it through the television ad, but but clearly now I think given the news coverage on this, um, you know, where does it go from here? So so we're as as you know I was referring to earlier on, it now are job is to continue to make sure we can teach, uh, you know, people how to respond. And so we're, you know, we're working with the Canadian Women Foundation on a campaign, a new campaign that's going to launch in two weeks' time that is going to be really focused on how to be a signal responder, what to do. Because like in that case of the, of, the, of the teenager, obviously the best course of action was to, it was urgency, it was immediate, it was outside. Yeah. The, the best course of action was to call 911. Most of the time, it's not. It really is mm-hmm. to reach out, to reach out to the person, you know, safely and say, what do you want me to do? I've noticed, what, what can I do for you? And usually the, the, the person doing the signal is the best one place to know, uh, you know, and to tell people what is best uh, to do. Is it now? Is, yeah. it, is it later, et cetera? So, so we're, 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 um, this is the focus. Now it's starting to be spread out. We need to make sure people not only recognize it, but but know where to go to be a good responder. Pay attention and, yeah. and be safe. And keep it safe. Yeah, it's it's quite amazing. I mean, it's uh, it's uh, it's a safe and happy ending on this uh, on this particular story. A lot of times, it is not. Um, where can people, David, get more information about the signal, what it looks like, and um, and how they can get more information on this? So the, for the information, go to uh, Canadian Women Foundation, CanadianWomen.org, uh, and slash Signal for Help. So CanadianWomen.org slash Women for Help. Signal for Help, sorry. There you go.
Well, congratulations. We'll uh, maybe chat in a couple of weeks about the new campaign, but uh, amazing work. And it's certainly, uh, it's a, a, almost through an organic form, uh, has reached the masses. And, um, and certainly, uh, hopefully, it's a game changer. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. That's David Toto, president of Juniper uh, TWA, part of the team that helped get this hand signal kind of known out there, enough so that it's now pretty much known through the world. And it all started here in Canada. Thank you for listening. Of course, you can join us live Monday through Friday, starting 6.30 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson on Point. This is Global News Radio.